please remain standing as we hear the reading of God's word. We will be looking this morning in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. This is God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and authoritative word. Let us pray together. Our God, we pray now that the question that those at this moment asked, what does this mean? Would you illumine our hearts and our minds to understanding that, Holy Spirit, you would teach us truth about Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We begin our text this morning at verse 1, and Luke says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, before we understand exactly what Luke is saying here in chapter 2, we kind of need to go back and have a a refresh, a, a reminder, what has happened and where are we? You remember in verse 4 in chapter 1, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. That is Jesus saying to his disciples, you need to stay here. You need to wait. And you are to wait for the promise of the Father, and that is the Holy Spirit. And from that moment on, they, that is the disciples, waited. They were unsure of how long. Jesus didn't tell them. But they waited. And they waited because Jesus told them to. But Luke gives us a stamp a time marker to help us understand exactly what is happening. He says the word Pentecost, that is 50 days after Passover. Pentecost is also known as uh, what you would read about in the Old Testament, the, the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. It was a, it was a celebration of the first fruits. Uh, you could call it an anticipatory celebration. For example, Pastor Joel this morning in Sunday school was using an illustration about marriage and what it means to love your wife. 
Do you just have a, a feeling of love or are there things that you love about her? Let me tell you one thing I love about my wife. So you can all believe I, I love her and it's not just a, a feeling. She broadens my horizon in a lot of ways. Uh, she loves food and to try new food. And so one of the, our favorite dates is we just go to new restaurants. And I think she's been married to me long enough that she says the same thing every single time we go to a new restaurant. We sit down, the waiter or waitress will come, and she will look at me and she'll say, now, Danny, this is our date, and we eat slowly. I have a problem. I'm a sucker, if you wanted to call it that way. I love appetizers, but they always frustrate me. They're too small, and they don't deliver what I'm hoping that they will do. And so I have to ask, is this a one bite, a two bite, a three bite? I would just prefer to inhale it. And so she reminds me every time, this is an appetizer. There's more food coming. Slow down. That, that's kind of what Luke is doing here when we understand Pentecost. It's an anticipatory celebration. The, the people of God, they're, they're thankful. They see a little bit of a harvest, but what they understand is there's more fruit to come. And how fitting that what we read this morning about the sending of God's Spirit comes at the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Wheat. It, it's intentional, isn't it? God is telling you his timing is perfect. There's a far greater harvest that is to come. And so we don't want to miss exactly what Luke is saying here. It's significant. You, you saw the title of the sermon. This changes everything. It's a very momentous, significant event. It would, well, it would rank up there with creation. It, it, it's, it's as just as magnitude-oriented as as the incarnation, as the resurrection, as the ascension, what takes place here is vital to the people of God. When we recognize what has been promised and what is fulfilled in chapter two, it draws our attention. Luke has already told you in chapter one that Jesus has ascended back into heaven. And do you know what the, the meaning then of the spirit coming? It means that what Jesus did on the cross, it worked. It actually accomplished that which he came to do. He actually accomplished salvation. It's a picture of, well, it's a picture of what Paul says in Philippians 2. He, the Father highly exalts the Son. The fact that Jesus enters back into heaven tells you his sacrifice was accepted. Your salvation can be secured because the Spirit of God came. It tells you something of eternity. It tells you that there's a, there's a form of temporary earthly existence, that Jesus who died and was rose from the dead, he has a glorified body and they watched his body ascend into the heavens. There's something temporary about this body and yet there's something greater in which is to come. It's the proof, you might say, of Christ's exaltation. Imagine the current context. Jesus had been crucified. He's not a popular figure in which people want to befriend. He's hated. The fact that he was crucified tells you he has been rejected. And yet what happens 
as Christ has ascended and is being exalted in the heavens, what does God do? He does something very different than when he announced his son. There's no angel who comes down. There is no messenger who's coming to tell you of Jesus. Who does God send? He sends himself. When restoration is needed, God sends himself. And he says, this is the proof that what Jesus did was true and it secures for all eternity those who are being saved by Christ alone. The Spirit of God does something very unique, doesn't it? He, in a much more full way, can substitute Jesus. Jesus was confined when he was in his ministry, wasn't he? Jesus had limitations. He had a body like you and me, and so it meant he could be at one place at one time. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, you want the Spirit, there will be greater things to be done. What is he talking about? Well, the Spirit of God is not limited by the time and space or place. The Spirit of God moves in and around everywhere all at one time. He is coming to be a greater substitute, you might say, of the earthly ministry of Jesus. The Pentecost changes everything. This changes everything. But how are we to understand what Luke is saying? Much controversy has come about in this passage. I want to draw your attention to three observations, three words. Sound, sight, and speech. Sound, sight, and speech. Sound, look with me in verse 2. Luke says for us, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. We don't know specifically where the disciples are. Most likely, they are not in that house in which they were praying. We don't think they were necessarily in the temple. Perhaps they were in a room off of the temple, an antechamber of some sorts in which they were close to the temple. But we don't know exactly where the disciples were. All we know is they were together. And something of a wind, something, a sound like a wind, and this is not your It's not your summer breeze. This is not your enjoyable fall, cool air, drinking your pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks. This is a category five hurricane coming with destruction. It is coming to destroy. That's the kind of sound that we are talking about. And yet, Luke tells you something about this sound. He doesn't say it comes from the north. He doesn't say it comes from the south. He doesn't say it comes from the desert. Where does Luke tell you this sound came from? It came down from heaven. It was sent forth from heaven. And it's important to note because there's a Greek word there that you've probably heard before. The Greek word for wind, it's pneuma. That word can also be translated spirit or breath. It's the Hebrew word ruach. Now. Contextually, you're talking about people in Jerusalem who probably had the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so when they hear Luke and they hear the sound of a mighty wind, the pneuma, what are they going to be reminded of? I've heard that word before. It shows up in Genesis chapter one. It's that spirit that hovers over the dark waters It's that same pneuma that is, you might say, hovering over the dark city of Jerusalem. 
And yet, what do they know about the Numa? Well, Genesis 2, we read, God breathed life into the lifeless body of Adam. And so this people of God understands life is being breathed out by God. The spirit of God is, is life-giving. It's not just creative, it's regenerative. It is bringing into existence that which was old, that which was dead is now alive. Perhaps you recall that great passage in Ezekiel 37, the, the valley of dry bones, in which God actually asks Ezekiel, these bones, can they, can they live? And Ezekiel says, surely you know. And the Lord told him, then prophesy over them and see what happens. And this is what Ezekiel says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Sound of a mighty rushing wind, it, it brings life. It brings creation. It's that picture that Paul gives you in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. What is he talking about? He's talking about the spirit of God entering into the life of a person. That which was dead has been brought to life. And the beauty is, it's not of our own doing. This wind, this spirit is not of our own doing. You, you, might, say, you might say wind is sovereign. You can't call it down. You can't command it. You can't formulate it. You can't do enough sacrifices and make it happen. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? The wind blows where it pleases. And so Luke tells you at the coming of the Holy Spirit, the sovereign, creating, life-giving Spirit of God has come. And this is where the people of God are. There's a sound of a mighty rushing wind. But there's not just a sound. that The people hear something, sure. They also see something. Did you see what Luke says? A mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house they were sitting. Verse three, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Luke tells us fire. You understand that symbol. It's a it's a symbol of God's presence. You remember that picture of God's presence, don't you? In the Old Testament, it's the, it's the pillar of fire that led the people in the wilderness. It's that picture of, of fire in Exodus chapter three that Moses sees and experiences the presence of God. And it's saying to us what? The presence of God is in their midst and that would have utterly shocked them. They would have had no idea what they were seeing. It would have had to be a double take. Rub your eyes. Is this a real sight, what I'm seeing? Because you understand this people of God, they understand the presence of God. How? God manifests himself at one spot, one location, at one time. They called it the temple. They've never seen God outside of a presence in one manifestation. And yet what the people see here in a single moment is that the presence of God has divided himself and spread into the lives of all of his people. They understand something powerful is happening right before them. It's Paul's language, isn't it? Your body is what? 
a temple unto the Lord. God dwells in the lives of his people. And so they see these things that look like tongues of fire. Fire is not just presence, you know. That's not the only picture, the only symbol that we understand in the scriptures of what fire means. Fire means something else, doesn't it? What does Luke tell you in his own gospel? Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist, he talks about a baptism. A baptism of what? Of fire. He's talking about Jesus. You, you fast forward just a little bit. I think it's probably Luke chapter 7, something, of, something around there. John the Baptist is well, he's in prison. He's scratching his head. Did I get it right? I, I thought the man, this Jesus that I'd met, I thought he was the baptism of fire. I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was the Savior. Did I get it right? And so he sends word to Jesus. And in Luke chapter 12, well, Jesus lets him know, oh, yes, I have come. I am coming to bring fire, a baptism of fire. And he's speaking there of his crucifixion. He's speaking of the cross. And what's the point of the symbol of fire? It's not just presence. It's what? Judgment. It's judgment. It's the judgment of God. It's why Matthew and Luke will say something of hell, and what will they say? It's a lake of fire. But you and I should pause then. If that's true, if if fire is judgment, something here makes no sense. If fire is meant to judge, and it is meant to destroy, and it is meant to consume, why is it that the people are looking at the disciples, and what they see is fire, and it's what? It's resting upon them. How can that be? It's because the fire fell on Jesus that it might rest on you. Jesus receives what you might say the condemnation of fire so that you might have the confirmation that you are his own and that his presence dwells within you. So it's not just that the presence of God in fire is divided, so too is his judgment. The judgment of God still will fall. It either has fallen on Christ in which fire rests on you or it will fall in its fullness upon you if you do not have Christ as your Savior. And so Jesus, when he talks about fire, he's, he's not saying, I, I, I want to do a little renovation. He's not saying, I want to come in and do a, a small rearrangement, a little redecorating. It's a whole rebuild. It's a gutting of everything and a total rebuild. It's why Isaiah says, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. That is Christ. And what you see in the presence of the Spirit is to draw your attention to the fact that the fire has fallen and it fell on Jesus for your sake. There's a divided tongue. There's a divided fire. There's not just a sound. There's not just a sight. But what brings much controversy is what? Speech. What, what happens? What happens in speech? It's caused a great deal of 
controversy, hasn't it? In reality, I don't think it should. It's actually quite clear. It's not difficult. It's not stretching of the mind to understand what Luke is saying. He's giving you an orderly account. He's saying things in an orderly way so that you and I might actually understand. What does he say in verse four? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They began to speak in tongues, other tongues. It's, it's also translated, what? Language. The word tongue often in the scripture doesn't mean something unique and special. It could also just mean language. What tongues are they speaking? You're not wondering. Luke told you who was present. He gave you all of the nations, verses 9 to 12. He tells you exactly who's there. You know exactly what languages are being spoken. What's happening, well, it changes everything because what is God doing through the power and the presence of his spirit at the speaking? Well, it means that what he said in Acts 1.8 wasn't just some exciting mission statement. It's a reality that God came to bring forth his gospel to all nations. This is, this is not a miracle of hearing. This is a miracle of speaking. And what are we talking about? We're talking about people speaking a language that they did not know. We are not talking about an angelic language. When people tell you that, it is wrong and it is untrue. That is not at all what Luke is saying. He's telling you the languages in which they are speaking. It's speaking to the people. And in case you didn't understand it, he says it twice. What does verse six tell you? And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak. How? In his own language. They understood what the apostles were saying in their own language. And in case we mistaken, we just forgot to read verse six. He comes back again in verse eight. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own? And then he adds another word just to make it really clear, native language. And he tells you who it is that are present. Jesus had promised that the spirit of God would come upon you in power. You would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And what is happening here is the the earth, as it were, is right here in Jerusalem. And they're all hearing the gospel. It's audible grace, isn't it? It's grace being demonstrated audibly that they would hear the gospel. Some have estimated 15 possible languages being spoken. People for the first time in their life hearing good news of the gospel, a coherent, orderly message of salvation. It's grace. That is grace that has come down from heaven. And so we we ask this question, does God speak Spanish? Yes. German? Yes. Latin? Perhaps it's a dead language. Italian, French, yes, yes, yes. Why does God, how do you know that he speaks those languages? It's not just because he has created all people. It's because you have the word of God translated in those languages. God speaks and he speaks through his word. You don't have to sit here and wonder, what is he saying? You open up this book and he tells you every single time, this is my 
word. This is what I'm saying to you. You're not left wondering what is going on. It reminds you, doesn't it, of that that story in Genesis chapter 11. Moses is telling you, the people of earth, they they get together. They they come up with a plan. We're going to build a tower. We're going to build stairs. We're going to destroy this distinction between creator and, and creature. And what does God do? Well, he pronounces a curse. And what is the curse that falls upon them? He interrupts their language. There was one language, and God interrupts, and he confuses them in the use of language. There's judgment. You could say, is God lifting the curse here? Perhaps, but only in one way. He doesn't destroy language. He unifies the message and sends it out to the languages. He doesn't remove the barrier of language. What he removes is the message not being translated into those languages. That's how you and I know the gospel is for all creation because he himself right here in Acts chapter two has said, the gospel is for the world. Take it to them. It tells you that God is not American. That's what it says. God is not meant for the West alone. God is not, some of you have heard in prayer and devotion, He shows no partiality. The gospel is not for a specific socioeconomic group, some political party, some race or ethnicity, some intellectual status, some, you name it. The gospel is for the world and it is for the creation and that is your responsibility and mine to proclaim it to all. We don't look and say, there's something different about you and so I withhold it. You take the gospel to any and all who are in front of you because you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture that the gospel is for the world. It changes everything when the Spirit of God comes. Now, many try to confuse this, and they tell you, but these tongues, ladies and gentlemen, this is not, this is not a picture of the, the gift of tongues. This is not Luke trying to tell you about what it means to speak in tongues. If that's where you are, you have entirely missed what the Holy Spirit is and what he does. The Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, doesn't he? What does the Holy Spirit do? It's a spotlight. He's a spotlight to show you Jesus, he is sent to testify to the things of Jesus. The Holy Spirit works in and through the word of God. You need no new word. He's given you all that you need to understand who Christ is. Pentecost is about Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to tell you what Jesus did worked, and that work is continuing. Salvation is on the move, and it is stretching from sea to sea. And so we recognize this beauty of the grace being 
shown through the power of the Spirit at Pentecost. But we also need to caution ourselves. This grace of God that is shown through the presence and the power of the Spirit, it's not just grace. There is a picture of judgment. You can read about it in, if you want a New Testament version of it, you can read about it in Romans chapter 11. Paul's telling Israel, he's telling the Jews, you've heard of this Jesus, you know who he is, but you have rejected him. And therefore the gospel is being removed from you and it's going to the nations. You can read about it in Jeremiah 5 and in Deuteronomy chapter 28. When we, the people of God, reject his word and his truth, there's judgment to be had. And some of that is just the absence of it. And you know what that looks like. Consider the Reformation. It was some of the greatest theological uh, treatises brought about, theological understandings. Biblical theology has been presented to us over and over and over again. But when you think of Europe today, do you think of the Reformation? Is that what you hear and see? It is a dead and dark world. But the question is why? Because truth departed from their speech in the pulpit. They stopped preaching truth. And ultimately, the people perished. You and I must heed that warning. We are not above that. In fact, if you read any of missiological studies, there's an interesting statistic that's still happening. Missionaries that are being sent out to tell the good news of Christ Jesus, those kind of missionaries, do you know where they're coming? They are coming here, and they're coming from other continents. We're not sending our own people to a city in America. The rest of the world is sending it here because we, the church, have failed to preach the truth of God. When you want to look out into the world and you think, why are there so many problems? You don't need politics. You don't need policies. You look at the church and you say, where has the truth gone? Why is the truth not being presented? Why is sin and hell and sacrifice and death, why is it absent from the pulpit? If you want to understand grace, you understand Christ in his death. You don't understand it in a universalistic picture that says all will just be saved. That is no gospel. And so friends, we cling as tightly as we can to the truth of God lest he judge his own people and remove it from her. Pray for your leaders that they never fail to give you what is truth. You get a picture of God's grace here in Luke chapter, or excuse me, Acts chapter two, but you get a picture of judgment. What are we to do with this encounter? The sending of the, Holy Spirit, it's, a, it's an unrepeatable event. People who say, you just need a second conversion, you need more of the Spirit. No, you don't. You need to depend on the Spirit more, but you don't need more of it. You don't need another portion. What you have is what you need, and you continually need him. As the crucifixion, the, cru the death of Christ, a, a death in which blood was shed once for all, so too, the sending of the Spirit of God came to bring life once into your life. He doesn't come, leave, and come again. He comes and makes his home where he never came. And that's what we're trusting in, that God's Spirit would come 
move in your life and in mine that we ourselves would be a spotlight to Jesus. That's the gospel. And if you want to understand how serious it is for God, just look at Acts chapter two. He's saying, to complete my plan, to accomplish what I have promised. Look at the resources I'm willing to give. I'm going to send myself again to you in the presence and power of the Spirit. I will finish the job. That's why Paul can say in Philippians chapter one, verse six, he who began a good work in you will finish it to completion because he didn't leave and go away. He lived to come and stay. And that's what he is doing in Acts chapter two. He is proclaiming to all, for all time, I have come, I'm not leaving until I return again. And this changes everything. You don't need any other world event to give you hope. You have the return of Christ. That's the only thing you are looking forward to. And you want the word of God to be saturated in your life until he comes again. We are to be watchful and waiting by use of his word. It's a big deal. And that's how Luke finishes in Acts chapter two. He uses these terms of the people who were watching. He says what? They were, they were amazed. They were bewildered. They were perplexed. They didn't understand, but that understanding did not prevent them from hunger. And yet there was a response of some that did. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine, drunk at 9 a.m. You see, friends, what is Luke trying to tell you? Miracles do not save. Jesus saved. The people who saw and witnessed all of this, yet there were some who still mocked and said they're just drunk. Miracles do not save. Jesus does. And that's the kind of church we wanna be, that we would be a church that is often praying, come Holy Spirit, work in our life. And by your grace, work through our life that we would be a spotlight, a testimony for Jesus. Let me pray to that end. Our God, we we give you great thanks. We often pray when we think of the worship of you in tithes and offerings, we, we say that our God gives every good and perfect thing comes from above. And that's true and And we often think about it in materialistic terms, but even here we see that every good and perfect thing comes from above. And today, according to the truth of your word, we recognize that good gift is the Holy Spirit. We read about that in Luke's gospel, that fathers who are good would, or fathers who are evil that know how to give good gifts, how much better does our heavenly father know how to give the Holy Spirit? And so we give you thanks that this grand redemptive plan of yours is not shallow in its resources. It is overwhelmingly sufficient because you didn't just create it and leave it. You created, incarnated, 
and came again for us by sending your spirit. Help us, O Lord, not to be a people of confusion, but of clarity. Who is Jesus and what is he like? That what the spirit tells us is not new things, but true things. And we would testify to Christ because of it. So Lord, would it please you to work in us and through us that we might be a church who truly knows and grows and shows forth the love of Christ by recognizing the truth of your word and therefore proclaiming it. And all for Jesus' sake we pray it. Amen.